0: Welcome to the Recruitment Flex with Serge and Shelly. I'm Serge.
1: And I'm Shelly. And we talk all things recruitment starting right now.
0: Welcome to another week of the Recruitment Flex. Again, I am joined, I can't get rid of her, Shelly Billinghurst. How's it going, Shelly?
1: I'm doing great, Serge. How are you? I'm living the dream. I hear that. Listen, we've got an awesome guest this week. Been looking forward to this as we did have an opportunity to work together before. I'm just so pleased that we could invite the lovely, the talented Dr. Lino Karumanchuri, who is co-founder and head of behavioral sciences with Mesh Diversity. Dr. Lino, welcome to the show. Thank you so very much. I'm excited to be here. Now, I know we've had a bit of a warm up in our relationship because we were on a panel together with Innovate Work. So welcome. Hey, can we just dive right in here? I've got a bunch of stuff I am just dying to ask you. Are you good? For sure. Okay, great. Let's talk a little bit about you first. Mm -hmm. Can you just give us a little bit about why you chose diversity, equity, inclusion, and you made a career out of it?
2: Yeah. It's not that hard. 18 years of racism will do it to you. I went to university, started a degree, what was it, in poli-sci, and then discovered I hated that and Mm. switched to humanities and discovered I hated that even more. And then uh, in my third year of of university, took a course called Race and Racism, and it was absolutely mind-altering. I started to realize why I had felt the way I had felt about myself and the world my entire life and and made a decision pretty much in a moment of what I was going to do for the rest of my life and got it towards my master's degree and my PhD focused in, in this and in specifically in social oppression and trauma.
1: Can you talk a little bit more about MESH diversity and your role as head of behavioral sciences?
2: Yeah, it was a very specific route. I I graduated in the early 2000s with my doctorate and started started a um, consulting company. So Mm -hmm. I was kind of on my own doing what I essentially thought was good work for about 15 years. And much to my chagrin, I'd look back and see all these organizations I work with. And when the champions left, if the CEO changed, all of a sudden all this work would disappear and it became untenable. And the science all made sense and the strategies all made sense. Yeah, But if you couldn't systematize it, if you couldn't take out the human frailties, then we were going to be stuck in the same problem forever. So I got together with a, a few folks that I knew. One in particular was in the business world, but specifically focused in software. That's our CEO, Mike. Mm-hmm. And we we put together a team that could take all of the science and actually wrap it into a, a nice little uh, software package that would allow you to systematize all the, all the science.
1: Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, I think there's more to unpack there. That's, there's a that's lot. A- <laughs> there's a
2: lot more on this
1: on the software
2: end. I'm not the guy to talk to. I can tell you all the science.
1: <laughs> okay, yeah, I want to talk science with you. Our audience is primarily talent acquisition people, mm-hmm. so recruiters. Mm-hmm. So, can you give us your perspective on the role that talent acquisition has in DEI? Uh, yeah,
2: can I be harsh? Give it to us straight. Listen, in the last few years, pre George Floyd, pre George Floyd, pre Me Too, I think there were a lot of folks who started to recognize that there was money in this field. Like it could be lucrative. I, I would say it about five or six years ago you started to see people hanging shingles, saying DNI expert, mm-hmm. and they would go into organizations and do an awful lot of damage. And and not intentionally doing damage. Shelley, you're in marketing. If I read a marketing book, would I suddenly be a, um, a marketing expert? W- would you trust me to come into your organization, lead all, <laughs> all of your marketing you right. know, work? Yeah. If or you fly a plane
1: because you read yeah, a book it, about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah exactly. I get your point.
2: <laughs> exactly. You would never hire a CFO because they had an interest in money. We're oh. passionate about money. But this is like the starting point for DNI. If you're passionate, and reality is, if you are female and or a person of color and or LGBT, then suddenly you're passionate and you have that. You should be leading our organization and have the portfolio. And and no ill intent. It's just that when people don't know what they don't know, they don't recognize just how damaging this approach can be. Uh, and so yes. we have 30 years of failed DNI as a result of it. If you punch in DNI best practices you will end up at what I call the echo chamber of nonsense. It's just 30 years of failed junk that just keeps getting regurgitated. So what this means for recruiting and talent is unfortunately, we're quite often looking at the wrong things in the wrong way and for the wrong purpose. So a lot of recruitment folks will be, a lot of organizations right now are trying to fill in holes. So we don't have enough women in leadership. So let's get some female bodies in. But in Canada, in particular, there was some massive research done by Mercer, a global study that was Mm -hmm. done in 2017 in the financial sector. The Canadian numbers are really interesting. At the professional level, women made up about 46%. Men were at 54, obviously. But as you went up the chain, by the time you got up to the executive suite, women were down to 15%. Mm -hmm. But the most telling feature there was that they were exiting at that point to twice the rate of men. So you can shove the bodies in, but if the culture itself isn't such that those bodies can feel a degree of inclusion or belonging, let alone thrive, mm-hmm. they won't stay. And if they're really good quality folks, they will leave and go elsewhere and try and find some place where they can do those things. So just shoving bodies in doesn't work. On top of that, it's the most surface level approach to DNI. I have met in my near thirty years in this field. Lots of white women who are racist. I have met lots of black men that were homophobes. So if I just, I, get, I don't have enough black men, so yeah. let's hire some black men, but I don't know if I'm bringing in some homophobes or not. Yeah. So there's this incredibly surface level approach to DNI, and And mm-hmm. then there's the snake oil. The old personality is a big key. In the DNI piece? Well, not really. When you're talking about diversity and what the challenges are, you're talking about racism and sexism and heterosexism and ableism and classism and ageism and ethnic oppression and religious oppression. These are not personality driven. These are socially generated in your experience of the world, right? Mm -hmm. Personality, good personality metrics, they tend to be standard. So You did a personality assessment, a good one. When you're like 20, it shouldn't change overly much by the time you're 40. But I was a mild homophobe when I was in my late teens. I'm not now because I've I've grown. I've learned things. I've experienced the world. So using things like personality and saying things like, oh, diversity of experience. And these are comfortable euphemisms for, let's not look at the ugly stuff. And the reality is we don't look at the ugly stuff. Nothing will change. Mm. And I just babbled for a lot. My pulch. That was hardly a
1: babble. Hardly. Oh my God! It's it's something that that I know Serge and I have talked a lot of. I think one of our first episodes was around why personality assessments are the dumbest idea in the hiring process. So
0: let's put that in perspective. I'm the CEO. I hire you to come join our company as a head of DEI. That includes all aspects of talent. How do you fix it?
2: Where do you start? So there's a couple different things and I want to be really specific because I I mentioned the snake oil and I want to make sure I differentiate that from DNI professionals who are genuinely doing trying to do good work. So for a lot of those DNI professionals who are passionate and they do fit those categories that allow them the portfolio, Mm -hmm. the problem is a lot of those folks are they are earnest. They want to do the right thing and do it well. There is an expertise that's generally lacking, but it's also that because we don't know what the problems are, they don't have the supports they need to be uh-huh. able to do this well? So that speaks to the question that you just asked. I think the way you have to look at this challenge is that it's an organizational change process. If you don't see d as a change process, then uh-huh. you're completely and utterly missing the boat. And just to give a little bit of a backdrop on that, Shelley, sexism existed before you were born. It was working on your family before you were born. The day your parents or caregivers discovered they were going to have a little girl, it's entirely possible something in your home went pink. And if not, aunts or uncles started buying dolls and such, not action figures, dolls. Mm -hmm. And we teach little girls how to be little girls. We teach little boys how to be little boys. There's a huge socialization process in gender identity.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Now we have this world that is set up for us. When you picture a ceo what do you picture because the vast majority of us aren't going to be picturing females let alone black folks or black females and we have this image it's yeah. for the reason that well, well it's some ludicrous number it's something along the lines of 14 percent of a man in north america are over six feet tall but 56 percent of fortune 500 ceos are over six feet tall And when you go over 6.2, it goes down to 4%, but 36% of Fortune 500 CEOs are over 6.2. So it's either there is, when you're looking for a CEO, there's a call that says, get me a tall guy, yeah, or there's something else going on. Mm -hmm. And and we have to wrap our heads around. It's not like there's a bunch of people sitting around a table, rubbing their hands together, going, let's screw them. This is where the social biases and the unconscious biases come in. The challenge for us is that when we don't, Look at this as a systemic problem. We're stuck in this trap of saying, "Oh, we just have to pick a couple of the right candidates. We just have to make some better decisions. We just have to recruit better." But recruiting is this this piece of the puzzle. It's Mm -hmm. not the whole puzzle. So -hmm. you can recruit the best person in the world, but if that best person in the world comes into an organizational that's culture that's closed they won't be able to do anything. Then there's these other things like stereotype threat, where you could have that best person in the world coming into the organization if they feel like they got into the organization for the wrong reasons. If they feel like they can't move up the chain and will be supported to fail forward, why mm-hmm. the hell would you try? So there are all of these other mechanisms that are at play as well. And so I think talent gets placed in the unfortunate uh, position of trying to solve this when talent is a piece of the puzzle. and mm-hmm. And- if you have an organization that's only doing it from a talent perspective
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know good luck it's not going to be great because what happens when you're trying to go past training and sorry hiring and actually move to training and mentoring and you know how you develop your leaders and like there are all of these other pieces that are part of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. So for us, the part of how we developed and why we developed the software is the linchpin across the board. For DNI to to actually do DNI well in culture is it's about behavior. You can't make somebody a DNI expert because they spend two days in training. It's just not going to happen. But you can certainly look at the metrics that drive what it is that makes culture healthy. You can drive behavior in your organization where you value civility, where you value things like uh, compassion and consideration. And you can, if you're using the right kinds of metrics, truly understand whether people have a degree of enthusiasm in their organizational experience, where they feel a sense of agency, like all of those things come Mm -hmm. from working in an environment where you feel like you can be at your best. That's where D&I work has to be. Because if you put the cart before the horse, if you just start shoving a bunch of diverse bodies in, it's an absolute crapshoot. It might work, but it it works because you have a good culture to begin with. If you don't have a healthy culture to begin with, we've got 30 years evidence that shows you what happens. I have now figured out why I'm not the
0: CEO of a Fortune 500 company. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think you made some really good points. And what I've seen is being a talent acquisition leader for companies, the CEO will come down. We need to do something on the diversity, equity and inclusion side. And I'll be completely fortright. I don't know where to start, but I've always said that it needs to be owned by the CEO. If it's not owned by the CEO or the executive, Mm -hmm. in reality, you can have a talent acquisition manager, you can have the HR manager. They're just not going to be able to pull it off. Can
2: I point out, go ahead, pick on that for two seconds. There's actually some really compelling research that shows exactly what you're saying. If I am in HR, if I am in talent and I do not believe my ELT, that my executive is actually behind this. Mm -hmm. There's no way I'm going to put the effort in because that effort requires that I risk. And I'm not going to put that risk in if I don't think that they have my back. To to go back to the point that we were talking about earlier, in particular, since George Floyd, I, I think after George Floyd, something that I've been saying for 20 years became exceedingly apparent. Human beings are generally good. This is very clearly a systemic problem, right? It it is. It's absolutely not that you have CEOs and senior executives rubbing their hands together and saying, "Let's screw it." It's just not the way it works. So I've been saying this for 20 years, and what you've seen as evidence after George Floyd is exactly that: forward-thinking, ethical, moral leaders jumped. And I'm not talking about the ones who said, "Let's do something quick and turn our Instagram feed black." I'm Mm -hmm. talking about the ones who said, "Do the Instagram feed. That's awesome, but we need to make some systemic changes." There have been piles of forward-thinking, ethical, moral leaders who said, we got to do something. The challenge for them is what do you do? Because Mm -hmm. when they have people internally who are trusting the echo chamber of nonsense, they end up at a standstill, right?
0: Can you dig in a little bit deeper on the echo chamber of nonsense? Because there's a lot of things that I'm probably doing that falls into it, and I, I'm sure a lot of our listeners as well. There's a lot of thing, and I think the intentions are really good. Unca- unconscious bias training, redacted res- resumes, exactly. I think there's plenty yeah. of examples, but panel can you
1: interviews, in- yeah, right. Yep.
0: Yeah. So, well, what was the first
2: one you had mentioned? There's, there's, there are just so unconscious much. bias training yeah. is so, the one I've seen. Yeah. So unconscious bias training, it's a really good example. When you do DNI work, so for years and years. The notion of DNI training was that someone was going to come in and train your people so that they could understand DNI. Right yeah. on the face of it, the foolhardy nature of that. Like I did this for 13 years; I'm still learning stuff. 13 years in formal education, and I'm still learning stuff because this is so, such a complex field. Mm-hmm. But two days, and suddenly everything's going to be copacetic. So there's a fundamental flaw, and, and again, we have decades of evidence. That DNI training, like singular uh, DNI training, no metrics. We have proof that it doesn't work. But we have what we have further proof of, is that they tend to cause friction internally, right? Mm-hmm. Because when you have facilitators, and I, I shouldn't say that, when I have trainers mm-hmm. who come in trying to facilitate intensely complex information that is incendiary in a polarized world. Your starting point is 30% of the people don't want to do it anyway. At, at the very least. And yeah. with DI, it's usually a little bit higher because I don't know about you. I don't like taking medicine. I certainly don't like taking medicine when I don't think I'm sick. And if the approach is politically correct, uh, social justice leaning, um, you should do this, these are the pronouns you must use. If you don't, you are resistant. There is an approach that is just fundamentally flawed and problematic. And that has tended to be. How DNI training has been done. So trainings themselves, for the most part, have not been particularly fruitful. But we continue to try and work with them. The strategic hiring—I I mentioned this stuff already. We still have the good chunk of organizations will hire at certain levels, and folks get ghettoized at those levels and the glass ceilings is in effect and the sticky floors are in effect and you don't see folks moving up the chain the way you would want to move up the chain so then we have this other stuff in the last five years we have these things that you're hearing more and more about around conversations it's a real tick box measure shelly back in previous part of your career when you worked in an organization where you weren't in a leadership role Think of the number of times that you would have had a male colleague and and not something gross, but say something sexist or do something sexist. One of the subtleties, not the obvious jump, the subtleties and the aggravation that it would cause you. And now all of a sudden you have a question in your head. Do I say something to this guy or do I not? Mm-hmm. And on those occasions, when you said something, how often did you hear in return? I didn't mean it that way. You shouldn't take it that way. You're being too sensitive. Sounding familiar?
1: <laughs> that is exactly it. Uh, you stupid woman, actually, is what he said to me. Oh, he even got that. Yeah, oh, that's Gee. not too subtle. Okay. I, true story. I had the conversation with the president who called me a stupid woman in front of people. I left, came back, cooled off, came back and said, don't ever speak to me that way. And stayed with the organization about maybe six months longer. But that is right. What was and it wasn't with, that long ago. Six months. It wasn't that long ago.
2: During the six months that you stayed, what was your quality of work like?
1: I think he respected me more because I was the only person who had the guts to tell him he was an asshole to his face, but in private, I I wasn't going to call him out in front of others, but I Uh, don't know too many other women that is not that long ago. And I'm sure it happens to this very day. Yeah. Yeah. And, I was and, just and kidding, It's usually. Or I think he's I his just response yeah. was, Yeah, it's, it's, he said, Show me the back of your hand. He goes, Now, how thick is your skin? Oh, wow. Yeah.
2: Nice. It's- so the challenge here is part yeah. of the reason what was the quality of your work like after mm-hmm. that incident and for the next six months before you left. There's a I think he's a leadership consultant. His name's Carrie Patterson. I think they're in Australia. There's a really interesting article they wrote called The Law of the Hog. It's worth anybody who wants to understand what happens when people are mistreated at work, go check it out. It's very worthwhile because when people are mistreated, we have all sorts of different ways of getting our pound of flesh, whether it's quit and leave, quit and stay, vicious compliance, malicious compliance, sabotage, uh, coming in late, leaving early. There's a whole bunch of ways we get our pound of flesh until we decide to leave You know, six Mm -hmm. months later, (laughs) but- After the event, the key is for an awful lot of women, when you don't speak up or you're not happy with the fact that you spoke up or didn't speak up in the way you'd like, when you go home, you run through this thought process. Oh, I should have. Oh, the next time he does, I'm gonna. I'll never. And if in the right circumstances, if you are running through that and you're still thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it, that's potentially something called ruminative preoccupation. It's a symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder. Because social oppression is traumatic. Racism is traumatic. Sexism is traumatic. Heterosexism is traumatic. And the problem is, again, we treat these things not in the serious nature that they should be treated. And so we run these let's have conversations and share stories and these really, for the most part, uh, superficial. Uh, approaches without recognizing just how much grief you can cause. So imagine mm-hmm. we're having a conversation circle, and you share that story with me, and I'm your colleague. And my response is, "Shelly, come on, get a thick skin," and now you got to work with me tomorrow, <laughs> right? So, yeah. trusting folks with no skill sets in this field to be able to lead those discussions—it's really problematic. And again, the potential for it to cause massive friction internally is huge. Mentoring, sponsoring. Ship programs can have really positive effects, but they need to be metricized. Mm-hmm. If they're not metri- metricized, then it runs the, you run the risk of having echo effect and, and more or less just folks ending up bringing in people who look like them and mentoring mm-hmm. folks who are like them and all of those other challenges. Inclusive interviewing, again, there's research on this behavioral analytics group out of they're in Europe, I think, did some really cool research. I think that's the name of it. But essentially, when you do this kind of interviewing, it's pretty much hit and miss, especially when the questions are standardized, especially when you're not metricizing. Again, measuring the right things in the right way for the right purpose. That's This is really
1: the... So interesting. Can we dive into that just a bit? Because I've heard others who are, say many years in, in the DE&I space as well, say that part of the solution is panel interviews. And I said, bullshit. That was my first response. Panel interviews just means you've got a bunch of people saying, it wasn't me. It was him or her or them. It, it, and so that's my take on panel interviews. Now thoughts.
2: Yeah. Um, I, this, this is the part where I'm really not a harsh person. I promise you that.
1: Oh, please tell <laughs> but, us the truth.
2: It, Give us the straight it's goods just here. A, a, just a, a lot of folks will recommend things because it's all they have to recommend. If you are a consultant, okay. Mm-hmm. And you have no way to metricize this work, then you would never point to metrics as a route to resolving D I, mm-hmm. you would go with the courageous conversations. You would go with those pieces. So. When the echo chamber has no concept of metrics, <laughs> so people who punch in best practices don't find anything else about metrics and why behavior is an important part of it and why the way our brains actually function is critical to how you engage DNI. So again, there have been real wonderful forward movements since George Floyd. One of the main ones is mm-hmm. I have not heard one person ask me about the ROI for doing this work. The ROI question is gone. Thank God. Um, I'm, I'm actually going to
0: dive yeah. deeper go on ahead. the metrics side of it because I, I think that's an interesting uh, perspective. But before I do, one of the things in every organization that they go into, they talk about culture fit. And yeah. culture fit is, first of all, when you hear culture fit. What type of reaction
2: do you get to that term? My reaction to culture fit is it's an exceedingly convenient way of pe- keeping people out that you don't want part of your culture. Thank you. It's it's it, Yeah, it's really that simple. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely it is. <laughs> absolutely it is. We have 300 plus unconscious biases filtering through our systems constantly. Mm-hmm. So if I am in an interview with you, And in my mind, I don't think that she's going to work well with Tim and Joe. Then my brain will seek out reasons to justify why you're not the right fit for this hire. So again, it's the human frailties that come into play. We have processes like selective filtering, like priming that are constantly at play. And it's not about your intelligence and it's not about your ethics and it's not about your morals. Your, your brain, for every one sensory neuron, like trying to wrap your heads around this number, okay? So we have this wonderful three pounds of flesh underneath our skulls that is capable of doing incredible things. We can create technology that peers literally billions of years into the past in space. And that same three pounds of flesh gets road rage. That same three pounds of flesh says nasty things to your partner when you're angry at them. These human frailties are part of our problem. And so we have this lovely sensory apparatus that's designed to go out into the world and bring in information for our brains to make sense out of. But for every one sensory neuron that brings information in, we got 10 to 100 on the inside that makes sense out of that information for me. <laughs> So in essence, my brain's just talking to itself. So I can bring in all sorts of inputs. But if I already have a baseline that I believe in, that makes sense to me, that fits, my brain will do a song and dance to make the world fit that model. It, it's part of the world. The world is incredibly polarized right now. But the simplest thing, and i got to be careful. I'm, I'm, I'm working from home and my kid's in the house. So I got to be careful about this. For all of your listeners who believed in Santa when they were little, <laughs> that's nuts. You believed that a, that a big man in a flying sleigh with flying reindeer made their way all around the world, depositing presents all over the place. It's nuts. But you believed it. And you believed it way longer than most of the other foolish stuff you believed in when you were children. If I came to you when you were four years old and said, hey, there's a green, red and purple dinosaur in the other room. It's got candy for you. Yeah, you're four-year-old. You run through the wall to get to the dinosaur with the candy. By the time your kid's about six years old, if you do the same thing, the six-year-old will say, dinosaurs don't exist anymore. If they did, they wouldn't be those colors and it wouldn't have candy. What's going on? Even by six years old, you can figure out that kind of nonsense. Mm-hmm. But most of us believed in Santa until we were like eight and nine and sometimes 10 years old. The reason for that is we have this piece of our mind called the critical faculty. It keeps out the nonsense, right? But certain things weaken the critical faculty. Repetition weakens the critical faculty. Mm-hmm. Repetition from trusted sources weaken the critical faculty. And the nonsense comes in. I just watched a CEO on a LinkedIn video just the other day explaining, oh, diversity is really important, but you can't, you have got to hire on merit. If, how are you still believing this myth of meritocracy at this point? If you look at your organization and see that pyramid I described to you, where there's 50% women at the bottom, but only 15% at the top, you either believe that women just suck as leaders. If you believe your organization works strictly on meritocracy, either just women are just not good leaders, or you're doing it intentionally. <laughs> If those are your only two, if there's no system involved, those Mm -hmm. are your only two options. Which one of these guys do you want to be? Mm. If you can accept that neither of those are tenable, you have to accept the reality that there's a system at play. And so that system is constantly working at us. So when you say things like culture fit, and you're the individual who gets to decide the culture fit, your frailties are going to play a pretty large role in deciding who does and doesn't fit in that culture.
0: And they do. You see it in every organization that I've been into. The first thing they talk about is culture fit. And I I tried to knock it down really quickly, just to exactly to your points. But I want to go to something that you mentioned way earlier, where you talked about, there's a ton of companies that have come up with DEI solutions, and a lot of it is they're talking about, hey, we can prove ROI with our solution, which gets a lot of CHROs, CEOs excited. Is this bullshit? Is there technology out there? Obviously, you work for a software provider, but I'm a big believer that technology should help if you've got everything in place. And you've got the right structure. You've got the right mindset. So in recruitment, we talk a lot about technology will help you. But if you have a shitty process, technology is just going to make your process even shittier and it's going to look worse. Or if you have a good process, it's going to make better. But what's your overall thoughts about technology diversity solutions? Because I'll tell you, there's a ton out
1: there. And they're popping up every week. I swear I hear two or three new ones. Yeah. Yeah, they're popping up every week for a
2: reason, and I'll try and explain this without being self-serving because there's a reason that we designed the software the way that we designed the software, and there's a reason that the DNI science is embedded in it in the way that it's embedded in it. The good chunk of the DNI softwares that are coming out, they use surveys to kind of gather information. The vast majority. We're not talking about the ones that are counting heads. If you have DNI solutions that are strictly counting heads, I think we've already talked about why that's a fool's errand, right? Because mm-hmm. you can get your women, but they might be homophobes and, and racist and all of those other things. So you can't solve for this problem by counting heads period. Uh, what you have to do is address the culture before those heads are there and address the culture so that the heads that the diverse heads that are existing are going to be able to be healthier and thrive. So culture is the key. So once you get rid of the software plays that are about counting heads, then most of them are going to be doing what you should be doing, which is trying to survey, to get information about your population, to understand culture. The problem is the vast majority, and I have not seen anything other than our product that doesn't do it, use something called Likert scale. You you guys have all done these surveys, one to five, one to 10, strongly agree, strongly disagree. So I'm going to do a, a, a short little Course, and any statisticians out there, please feel free to yell at me if I get this wrong, because I got to go back to 20, 25 years old, my master's degree to, to remember this. stuff. But Likert scale is designed to do one thing and do it fairly well. It's designed to take a type of variable that can't generally be measured and make it measurable. So if I said, say, hey, Serge, how do you feel today? And you said, I, I feel good. I don't know what the hell that means. I have no clue what that good, your good might be different than Shelley's good and my good. Mm -hmm. So the purpose of the Likert scale is to make us make sense out of that. I feel good. So step number one, how do you do that? We have a few different variables we got to talk about. There's first, there's nominal variables. So Surge and Lino are different. They're name-based, they're nominal variables. Can't Measure that. They're relevant. Then if if Surge is, I think, further west than is Lino, this is an ordinal variable. Also that doesn't give you much to be able to measure. But if we went to the hospitals where a surge and I were born, we can get down to the minute exactly how old surge is and how old I am. That's called an interval level variable that you can use for measurement. So the whole purpose of these kinds of surveys is to take nominal and ordinal variables like feelings, how do you feel? Mm-hmm. And make them function like they're interval so that we can you know, study them. Here's the problem. (laughs) I can be the most sexist ass on the planet. If you give me a survey that says on a scale from one to 10, how do you like working with women? Oh, 10. Love it. On a scale from one to 10, how do you like having a female leader? Oh, 10. Wonderful. Oh, no, honestly, it's, it's, it's anonymous. You can feel free. Absolutely. 10. I'm not stupid. And if I'm doing a survey about my experience with my micromanaging boss, I also know exactly how to answer. So, human beings, we lie for multitudes of reasons. We lie to save face. We lie to curry favor. We lie to protect ourselves. Sometimes we lie without knowing that we're lying. And so, using Lakerd scale inside an organization where power dynamics are at play, number one is already an issue, and number two, the moment there are questions about my identity. And I know what the right answer is. You can tell I'm going to answer, right? Mm-hmm. So the all of these scales are fundamentally flawed. There's some interesting research that says North America will don't like to choose options on either ends because it feels too extreme. So you lose all of that data. So the problem is, if you get flawed data, what's the purpose of even doing the measure? So our approach can't be gamed. Leveraging the science, our approaches can take you straight from the culture writ large right down to team level. So you're talking about the things that actually matter with d things like psychological safety, things like belonging. But again, like, this is a really good example. It's one of those things that frustrate me. Shelly, you said there was a new one popping up every couple of weeks, right? A new company mm-hmm. with that's solving for DNI. A lot of them have this lovely question. Do you feel belonging on your team? <laughs> we'll do a little exercise. I know this is a podcast, so nobody can okay, see go. this, right?
1: Yeah. Both of you, Okay. close go. your
2: eyes. Close closed. your eyes, close your eyes, picture mm-hmm. an elephant. Okay. Close your eyes, picture an elephant. You yep. got it? Yeah. Okay. O- open your eyes. Open your eyes. Hands up if it was a cartoon elephant. Yeah. Both of you picture a live- lot. Oh, yours was cartoon, Surges was live. lot. Look at that. I just said elephant and I got one cartoon, one live. Either of your elephants in motion. What color was the elephant? Guaranteed, not the same color. So I say something simple like elephant, your brains mm-hmm. go completely in different directions. Wow. What you think happens when I say something like belonging, which is actually wow. complex and actually has metrics to it. So when we measure belonging, you have to be asking questions around how curious are people about, or are you? Are they attentive to you when you talk? Do they coach you with candor? Are they considerate? Are they appreciative? There are actually metrics Science-based metrics that you can actually look at to tell you if people feel genuine belonging, genuine inclusion, genuine safety, not these pop-up every week surveys. And it's part of, again, it's part of the problem. The the vast majority of DNI professionals who get that portfolio who don't have a lot of experience in the field, understandably, because for a lot of folks, they're new to it, right? They're earnest. They want to do a good job. This means something to them. They're passionate about it. And all of these snake oil sales people out there are popping up with all of this stuff. There's no background in the field. They're just throwing out something they think can make a sale. You know what I mean? And then a whole bunch of earnest, desperately earnest people who want this to work are buying into the stank oil. That's part of the problem that we have in the field right now.
1: Hmm. So How do you know got
2: i a high there.
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> you you pulled us right in. I think both Serge <laughs> and I are just like, oh, late. Okay. Now this is very, very meaty. So thank you. We're very focused on talent acquisition. And we're getting and seeing a lot. We even had a video interview platform claim that it should be part of your diversity uh, inclusion process, or, or they claim that they can now lessen discrimination in hiring. And I'm like, no, all you did was put it on video. <laughs> what a racist jerk you are anyway, but that is how they're promoting it. am I yeah. Serge, I'm not making this shit up. He came on our show and said, that using one-way video interviews is a way to ensure that you have diversity in your hiring. I'm like, really? Hey,
0: I, yeah. I think his point was that now there's video proof if you are or if you're not based on your interview question. And of but course, yeah, it's yeah, proof that
1: you're not, when in fact, all you've done is you now have video that you guys are.
0: Yeah, exactly. Which is might be a good thing in that sense. but. So Lino, excellent perspective, really appreciate all the time, because I think a lot of us are just trying to find a way to basically have a solution and say to our CEO, hey, we've done everything on DEI, we're rolling along, so it's a checkbox. And I think the message that I'm leaving here, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that it's not a checkbox. This starts from the top. This is structural for a lot of organizations. So, on that note, what's the easiest way to get a
2: hold of you? Meshdiversity.com. Uh, Perfect. Just jump on our website. Easy. Can, can I say just one last thing before we go? DNI can be scary for a lot of folks. Yeah. When it's done well, it doesn't need to be. I have lost nothing in my career. Or my life by trying to work as an ally for female colleagues and LGBT colleagues and colleagues who are diverse in whatever way. It's only been a benefit to me. The only reason that there is friction in this field is because we've approached it in such problematic ways for so long. And ultimately, the status quo likes the status quo and we don't like change. But if in your organizational approach to this, you're applying real metrics, that can help to establish safety, real safety for folks. And that ladders up to feelings of belonging, like deep belonging, affection, trust. And that then ladders up to feelings of of deep inclusion, true appreciation. Like I feel valued when I come to work. Mm -hmm. All of these things, they kick off really powerful internal motivators for us as human beings because we're social animals. Turning engagement surveys to do this kind of work is mildly problematic. Engagement surveys, when they're structured, they tend to be lagging indicators of the things we're talking about. You can't be engaged if you don't feel included. You can't be engaged if you don't feel belonging or feel safe. But when I feel those things, and in my engagement with the people with whom I work, if I feel valued, I want to give it back. It's called the virtuous loop. It's how you build community. It's how you drive culture. And none of it has to be scary. None of it. So when you're measuring the right things in the right way for the right purpose, we can actually make the headway that we want to. And all those earnest people out there can really make the difference that they want to make.
1: What a wonderful message. You know, I think what has stalled it is just that it's the fear That's this very aggressive D E and I person is going to make me feel uncomfortable and embarrass me and feel like I've been doing it wrong this whole time. I love this approach. That is just a wonderful way to wrap this up. Dr. Lino, you are amazing. Thank you. Wonderful to talk to you you again. And I hope we can speak again real soon
0: with any luck. Appreciate guys. Thank Thank you. you
2: how much do you understand the future of finance i'm jim roos a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast banking transform where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology join me as i interview industry experts